Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guest this week is Liz Riffle, owner-operator at Riffle Farms, the first commercial bison operation in the state of West Virginia authorized to field harvest animals for sale as individual cuts. Liz's journey from growing up in a small town in New Hampshire after the fast-paced life of moving around the country with her Navy pilot father and nursing mother is so relatable for many veterans. After being tossed into the wounded warrior unit at Walter Reed as a 22-year-old nurse in the middle of wars in two countries, Liz managed to reach back to her time growing up with horses as a way to cope with the difficulties of this assignment. She also met her husband Jimmy there, and after six years in the Navy, set off as a trailblazer into the field of commercial bison production. This episode is all about that journey, what it's like to raise bison, the regulatory and logistical challenges of starting something so nuanced, and finally, real conversations about holistic management and farm profitability. Liz is such a great orator that I hope you find this conversation as interesting and engaging as I did. Enjoy. So I was a Navy brat um, myself. So I was born in California, uh, just outside of San Francisco. Um, My dad was a Navy pilot. So we bounced around quite a bit when I was younger. um, And the military was basically my first memory. Um, So, but he got out when I was about 10 years old. And um, after we bounced around from California, um, Illinois, Florida, places like that, we went up to New Hampshire. And so um, settled, you know, up there in the middle of nowhere, beautiful woods of um, New Hampshire. And that's where I first um, fell in love with horses, you know, as a 10 year old little girl, right? Um, They had ponies all over the place. And I uh, was fortunate enough to start horseback riding lessons and fell head over heels for that, um, I guess that animal specifically and loved um, just being out there with the horses and riding and competing and things like that. And so I actually um, competed as a hunter jumper for um, most of my um, school aged years um, and, you know, well through high school and had a couple of my own horses um, in our backyard as well. And so had a ton of fun with that kept me out of a lot of trouble. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I mean, I did pony club, I did horse shows, uh, we trailered horses, we rode all over the place. I had girlfriends in town and we would ride together. Um, it was a ton of fun. It was a great way to grow up. Um, I was very motivated to have my own horses and I was up every morning, even before high school at 6am you know, feeding my horses and making sure that there was no ice on the water. And I would snow blow paths for them through the snow and silly things like that. So I was, I was horse obsessed, right? I was your typical little girl who was completely horse obsessed. Um, And I actually continued that even throughout my military career. So um, 
my, like I was saying, my dad was in the military, so he was a Navy pilot. And so that's something that was, you know, near and dear to my heart. My mom actually was a nurse. She went back to school and became a nurse when I was in high school. And um, I found that I loved that aspect of um, professionalism as well. And like, that was kind of calling to me. Um, she is a, an amazing mom and an amazing woman, and she was an amazing nurse as well. And so I kind of felt like that fit in with me. And so I, I started looking into, into um, that professional field. And so I kind of like meshed the two, right? So I was like, well, I want to be military. You know, my dad, my dad did that. <clears throat> I felt a calling from that perspective. I wanted to give back to my country. I wanted to do a lot of traveling. Like I was saying, I was in this little teeny tiny town in New Hampshire, starting at 10 years old. I wanted to go see bigger and better things. Um, so for me, that was the military. You know, the military was my ticket out of middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. And um, I chose to, to kind of pursue a career in nursing as well, because I knew um, that, or I thought I would enjoy that. And I knew I could get a job doing that pretty much anywhere. And um, the military did a lot of really cool scholarships for um, the nurse corps specifically, the Navy nurse corps, which is what I ended up joining. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of just meshed really well. And I chose to go to school in Chicago, um, which was a huge city compared to um, where I was there in New Hampshire. And it was kind of shock and awe, but it's definitely what I needed at that age of 18. Um, it was a great way to get out of my comfort zone and experience something completely different. Um, so yeah, so I did four years there in Chicago, uh, did my undergrad at Loyola University in Chicago with my nursing degree. And I also got a Naval Sciences degree at Northwestern, which is just north mm. of the city. Um, so mm. I kind of double dipped. Um, so I, to be honest with you, I worked my ass off in college. <laughs> yeah, It was it not <laughs> like a, a party, a party. I would love to redo college because it sounds like a lot of other people had a lot of fun. And um, I didn't really have a lot of fun. I just worked hard. Um, so I got a scholarship that's known as the Naval ROTC scholarship program. Mm -hmm. And so they actually paid for school. Um, but what as they do I? too, is not only do they make you go to all those Naval Sciences classes, but they also utilize you for cheap labor in the summers. <laughs> right. So, so I was 18 and basically started working, you know, in the military um, from, from then on. Um, but when I graduated in 2010, my first duty station was in Bethesda, Maryland. And so I packed up my SUV and drove my butt down there and, um, started my career at the National Naval Medical Center, which is what it was called back then. Um, it's now called Walter Reed National Medical Center. So the army and the Navy have now joined um, operations and are up there. Um, and it was, wow. I, I was baptized by fire. Um, when I got there, it was, <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. I was 22 years old. I walked, you know, onto my first unit and I really wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. Um, I wanted to, you know, do moms and babies and stuff like that. And they're like, no, you're not right. going to do that you're gonna work with the wounded warriors. And I was like, okay, um, great. You know, we're in the middle of a war. Um, so these wounded young men coming back um, basically is what I walked into day one. Um, and it was 
very interesting because we um we were taking care of these young men it was typically men to be honest with you and it was typically marines um that's who was yep. really on the front lines at that time um operation iraqi and operation enduring freedom um and they were very young most of them were younger than i was and they were coming home in pieces literally um so very young myself taking care of a very young crowd um of young gentlemen as well and um it was a learning experience. I learned so much about human capacity, um, what the body is made of, what the body wants to regenerate from, what the body wants to recover from. Um, it was it was amazing. It was me. Uh, you know, I was a nurse. I had doctors, you know, next to me who were also very young, just out of medical school as well. We were all learning together. Um, there were not many places in the United States or even in the world that take care of um, wounded like this who were blown up and had amputations. Uh, we used to actually teach some of the nurses and physicians from shock and trauma up in Baltimore just because they would not see those types of things. Wow. And yeah. um, so we were kind of at the forefront of what was going on. And a lot of it was figuring it out, you know, as, as you went and learning along the way. And so, um, so, Again, I learned a lot um, very, very quickly. And uh, I learned a lot, even though I wasn't in the front lines of war, I learned exactly what that was yeah. all about and what happens. Yeah. I mean, we would get these guys who were maybe 24 hours post-injury. Um, I had some of them that were not coherent to the point where they would come in and they didn't even know they were missing limbs um, until I told them that. And it was it was a lot. I. Um, I had a hard time with it um, for a while. And then I had to kind of figure out how to emotionally, you know, have mm -hmm. the bandwidth to, to keep on keeping on type thing. Um, but interestingly enough, that was also the same unit where I met my husband. Um, we actually worked there together. He had been a nurse a year longer than myself. And uh, we actually connected on that unit. I worked alongside each other uh, for quite some time. Started off as friends. You know, a lot of us would hang out um, after after hours, you know, just to kind of like <laughs> digest right. what we had just right. done type thing, <laughs> whether it was night shift or day shift or things like that. Um, so it really started off us all hanging out as really, really great friends. And so my husband and I were friends to begin with, which was awesome. And then um, it kind of just, you know, expanded from there, which was a lot of fun. Um, but the other thing that helped me at that time in my life is I never forgot about my horse background. That for me has always been very grounding. And so even when I was in Bethesda, I um, volunteered at a horse rescue just north of the city. And I would go up there a couple times a week and help them retrain their horses. Um, so that was my outlet where I could get out and not necessarily have to talk to a human being. I could have an emotional relationship with an animal and that really helped to, to keep me grounded. And it's something I continue to do even when we traveled around the country after duty. Um, <clears throat> so I went further south a little bit down in the Virginia area. And then my husband and I, we moved out to Washington state. And even when I was out there, again, I was volunteering and training courses and taking lessons and things like that. And it was just a way for me to, to get outside and be outside and just have a different connection. 
Um, and so that lifestyle has always been central to, to what I need as a human. And I feel very passionate about that. And so when Jimmy and I were talking about kind of what we want to do later on in life, how do we want to retire? Where do we really want to set up a home per se? Um, my first answer was I want to farm <laughs> and I want to have horses is what I would really like to do. Um, and so he figured out pretty quickly though, that in our travels and doing the horse thing, horses are expensive. Um, it's a very expensive hobby. And so, you know, we were tossing around the idea of, okay, well, if we have horses and we have fencing for that, you know, maybe we, we put some animals in there like cows and at least we have our own meat or we could sell it on the side, you know, just to at least recoup some of the money that we're going to put into this farming venture. And I was like, yeah, I know that sounds like a great idea. At the same time, roughly, I was actually reading a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Fower. Um, and if you haven't read that one, it's kind of like the omnivore's dilemma, right? Like one of okay. those pivotal right. readings <laughs> um, basically just exposes the entire national meat system and what actually happens in the slaughter facilities. And um, I was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'm an animal lover, right? I grew up with horses and dogs, and I was just horrified that we treated these animals as inanimate objects that we can throw onto an assembly line and then package up and ship to the grocery stores and eat. Um, and I actually considered becoming a vegetarian. I was like, I don't think I can eat meat, honestly, anymore. This is not, this is not a great system. Um, I feel bad about this piece of meat sitting on my plate. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it was treated. It was probably just in a horrific setting on some feedlot somewhere and then scared to death during the slaughter process. I just didn't feel good about that. Plus, as a nurse, I also didn't feel good about ingesting all of the stress hormones and antibiotics that are pumped into some of these animals in order to keep them on those, um, those feedlots and to put them into a slaughter facility and things like that. And I was like, that cannot be healthy for us to be ingesting a lot of that. Um, so <laughs> I am a carnivore. Um, I do love my meat. And so the answer there wasn't necessarily becoming a vegetarian. Since Jimmy and I were talking about the whole farming thing and having animals, I was like, well, yeah, why don't we raise our own meat? And then that way we can eat meat sustainably. And honestly, I know where it came from. I know how it was raised. You know, we could potentially have the option of not even bringing it to a slaughterhouse. We could just, you know, field harvest it and butcher right. it ourselves. And that would be great. You know, there's gotta be other people out there who want that. So there was a lot of people out there who want that. And come to find out during our travels across the country as we're moving places, you know, we find ourselves in Jackson, Wyoming, and that's where the buffalo still roam in Yellowstone. And you can get a bison burger or a steak at any restaurant out there. And it was really great eating. Um, again, we're meat eaters. We love steaks. We love a good ribeye, um, a good tenderloin. But we really liked how bison, when you eat it, it doesn't like sit in your stomach because it's not super fatty. So bison actually has less fat mm -hmm. in it than chicken. And so you can eat a bison steak or bison short ribs and not be like, oh, I can't move the rest of the day, you know? 
Um, and so we kind of liked that. And interestingly enough, while we were skiing in Jackson, Wyoming, um, Jimmy's like, you know, we should go down the street here and talk to the guy who's got a, a meat shop and ask him if you can actually raise bison. Like we see these bison out here in Yellowstone, but they're obviously not eating the Yellowstone bison. So where are they getting them from? Hmm. And he's like, I wonder if we could raise them. And I was like, okay, let's go talk to the guy at the meat shop and see what he <laughs> has to say. He's going to think you're crazy, but whatever. Um, and, and so we talked to the guy and he's like, oh yeah, you can totally do this. He said, it's a little bit nuanced, you know, it's a wild animal. You got to be careful with your fencing and your handling facilities. But he said, you could totally raise them. No problem. And so Jimmy's like, here we go. We're, we're going to raise bison. We're going to have bison. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, bison, I guess let's, you know, let's look into this. And so, yeah. so that's where that idea started. Right. And I was like with this. So we started doing a lot of research from that perspective and talking to folks who actually had bison ranches and farms across the country and recognize that it's definitely something you can do. And the more research we did from that perspective and research into the health profile of the meat, I was super excited about just from, you know, our healthcare background. And then we found out that you could field harvest them for commercial sale. So hmm. I can field harvest my animal and I can still stake it out. I don't have to sell it in quarters. You can technically field harvest any animal and sell it in quarters, no problem. But for us, we still wanted to be able to sell it in individual cuts. And you can do that with bison because they are considered a non-amenable species um, according to USDA and FSIS. And so we really just honed in onto this little niche that worked out beautifully for us in regards to what we wanted both personally as well as professionally. And so, you know, Jimmy's from West Virginia and he wanted to have a farm out there. And technically the bison are a keystone species and they would have roamed as far east as Washington, DC. Um, they may not have stayed in Washington, DC for very long, but just when the grasses were good historically. Um, but they definitely were in West Virginia. And so we were like, well, I mean, we could bring them back there. And so um, at the time there were a few folks in West Virginia actually who did have hobby farms and had, you know, maybe five to eight bison. Um, there's, you know, four or five folks who, who had them. Um, but we were actually the first commercial bison operation in the state to actually have the animals and be processing them um, for individual meat sales. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, and the state, we had to work really closely with the state to talk about how that was going to work because they were not necessarily on board with the fact that we could field harvest them. Right. Um, so we had to have some conversations actually for a couple years before we were allowed to field harvest them for commercial sale. Um, but it was just one of those things that we just had to have the conversations, right? Like I, I understand right. how government works. We understand how these regulations work. Um, and it just took a little bit of time to get the right stakeholders involved and make sure we were all on the same page and doing this legally. Um, and so, yeah, so it did take me a couple of years to be able to do that, but that is now what we do. We field harvest our animals for individual, um, meat cut sales and, uh, yeah, we're, we're running with it. <laughs> I have so many questions. You did such a beautiful job sort of 
weaving that story in together into where you are. If I may take one brief step back and to the extent yeah. that you feel comfortable answering this, you get a Marine or any injured soldier that comes into a place like Walter Reed. Like, what was the approach that you took when you first interacted with someone like that? Was it to try to connect or understand um, what was happening? Was it empathy? Was it um, more practical, like nursing capacity? How did you how did you first go about connecting with a patient like that? And then how did it maybe change over time? Totally. Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, when you walk into a room, um, again, these guys are, are, are pretty young. Um, the way to connect with them is they want to know that they, they, they kind of want to be your buddy type thing. You know, like they okay. wanted to know that you were on their side and I'm here, I'm young. I, I understand your perspective. I know why you probably got into the military. Um, you were out there doing some really cool stuff and, you know, riding around in Humvees and, you know, you had all your guides with you and all your gear. And um, so trying to just level with them at their level, right? Like, what did they right. do? What happened? Why did they do it? Um, I mean, like little things like when they would come back and they still had all their clothes on, you know, what, what's in their pockets, you know, like what type of candy bar do they like to eat, you know, like I'll go downstairs and grab them a candy bar, you know, like okay. things like that. So just like off the bat, I, I'm, I'm here to be their nurse and to take care of them. But I'm also, I was also felt like I was there to be their friend, right? Because okay. they were scared. I mean, very, very scared. So I felt like it was my job to level with them, honestly, as just a human being, um, roughly their age. Um, and recognize that they're 19, dude, you know, and they're in the hospital blown up to pieces. So let's, let's talk about that. And, and let me, let me get you whatever you need. What movies do you want to watch? Like I said, what type of candy bar do you want? When's your family coming into town? Where are they from? You know, um, just little things like that, you know, um, was the best way to to just off the bat try and build a relationship with somebody who was going to have to trust you for quite a bit of time it wasn't going to be just a week in the hospital it was going to be it was going to be quite some time um so that's how i would transition it to begin with and then i would come at it definitely from the more professional perspective and like what they need from you know medication standpoints rehabilitation standpoints you know really be able to talk to them from the medical, you know, jargon and medical side of the house. But I had to kind of be a friend to them first and foremost, before they would trust those opinions. Um, because medicine is something that they don't know, right? Um, but I could at least level with them from a human component and, you know, a, and, and a, a military component um, mm -hmm. to begin with. So... Are yeah. you following most of them all the way through at least their ICU stay? And then once they transition out of ICU into rehab, they sort of become the responsibility of a new team or did you yeah. follow? Okay. Yeah. So once they um, no longer needed, you know, pretty much around the clock care and would go into rehab, we, we wouldn't see a lot of them very frequently. Um, the really cool thing though, was that a lot of them would come back to make sure that they 
came to see us and show us their progress. And um, I have one guy specifically who um, was near and dear to my heart. He, he came back, he was a triple amputee, um, lost his um, arm below the elbow and both legs. One was at the knee, one was above the knee um, and was in the chair. And it was his dominant hand that he had lost his, his right hand. Um, But he came back in his wheelchair and he was so proud um, that he could write my name on the piece of paper. I remember, I mean, I'm sitting there like this is, you know, I'm using my own sheets of paper to write all of my medications down. And he just, you know, takes, takes my sheets of paper, flips it over and is like, oh, check this out, Liz, I can write your name now. And I was like, that's amazing. Look at you. You know, like it was, it was those little things when they would come back to see you and be like, Hey, I just wanted to, just wanted to you know, tell you how I was doing and come check in on things. And, and that was really cool. But that was the brief times that we would get to see them outside of um, kind of the acute care setting when they were doing some of the rehab. So when you have a situation like that, or something similar, do, do most of them respond to their situation in a similar way? Or does it vary wildly? based off personality or circumstance? I would say the majority of them respond similarly. And then there were, you know, your one-offs. I would say probably 75 to 80% of them respond very similar. Um, They're from very similar socioeconomic backgrounds. They joined the Marines for a reason, um, enlisted, very young. So similar mentalities from that perspective. And so they tend to deal with, you know, what happened to them in a similar way. Um, But there were definitely some cases where that was definitely nuanced or there were different injuries, um, especially when you have injuries to the the face. Um, Mm. That that definitely lends itself to a little bit of a different um, response, Um, uh, especially if you you had eye injuries and potentially wouldn't be able to see out of an eye or had some blindness issues, Um, that, that definitely, had had some different um responses from those perspectives but for the most part they were pretty similar as you look back on that time now i can't imagine that you would want to you know relive that but at the same time i can't imagine that you would value if that's the right word that experience because in a lot of ways it shaped potentially who you are today and how you think about you know, various things, right? Totally. Oh my gosh. Yes. I am. I don't want to do it again. Um, and (laughs) I chose not to stick with doing wounded warriors, um, for very long after that, because I, I did have a very hard time with it, um, personally. Um, but it was an amazing experience and I will say it is the reason why I, I live life that I do today. Um, I try to live every day to the fullest because you don't know when it may be your last mm-hmm. or something could happen that will alter your life for the rest of your life. You know, say you do get in a car accident or you are somewhere or maybe not even me, but even from Jimmy's perspective, he's still active duty and he's currently deployed. Right. Um, what if he gets injured? And what does that do to my life too? You know, so, so I, from that, from 22 years old, (laughs) I made a promise to myself never to take 
what I have in mm -hmm. life for granted and the opportunities that I have. And I think that that is what has fueled me for so long to keep pushing and keep going. And even when, you know, shit gets hard, you just keep riding it yeah. out because some people have it a lot harder than you do and they have to figure it out. Um, and um, I, I just, I wanted to live life to the fullest and, and I, I got it from, from doing that um, from that young age. And that's what's made probably one of the most significant differences in my life in general. I really don't take no for an answer <laughs> and um, I, I definitely push and make sure that, you know, every day is really a day that, that I can enjoy and can look back on and be very appreciative of. How long were you in the Navy total? Um, so I was six years active duty and I did four years, years reserves. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's, let me step forward into the life that you live today. Um, on on rifle or riffle make sure I'm pronouncing it's riffle. That right. yep riffle, riffle. rifle okay. would be on... really cool but it's riffle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this idea of uh field harvesting and being able to sell individual cuts is certainly a unique one for me can you maybe so you mentioned a couple of phrases you mentioned uh non-amiable species did I get that right okay so what yep. what is that um mm -hmm. and why is that such that it allows you to do field harvest in a way that cattle or sheep or something like that to do? Sure. Yeah, those are great questions. So non-amenable species basically means that the animal is exotic. So bison are considered non-amenable according to FSIS and they are exotic. So Basically, they recognize that people are raising these animals for meat, um, certain exotic species, elk, deer, yeah. Yeah. Um, different types of waterfowl, things like that. Um, but there's not enough of them to highly regulate them, right? Because okay. the idea there, the reason why there's all these regulations in relation to our meat system um, is because of um, sickness and foodborne illnesses, right? So they want to prevent... Um, potential contaminants from making tens, hundreds of thousands of people sick, you know, from an animal. And so basically it's just a species that they recognize it just, there's just not a lot of it. And so it's not highly regulated. And so basically yeah. they also recognize that bison, elk, deer, very difficult to get into a trailer and into a slaughter facility. Um, mm. They are just not mm -hmm. domesticated animals, beef, cows are domesticated. They have been domesticated for hundreds of thousands of years, right? And so we can get them on and off the trailer and put them into our nice little, you know, handling systems. And they do very well with that or pretty well with that compared to a wild animal. If you try and right. get a bison into the same beef slaughter facility that is not set up for bison, um, you run into some problems like injuring the animal, injuring the handlers, or just ruining Right. their slaughter facility. Right. Um, right. So, because when you have a thousand or 2000 pounds of very angry animal coming at you or trying to rip apart your shoot system, it's not pretty. And so they allow you to field harvest them. Okay. Um, and so that still has to be done under inspection. It's not like I just go out and pick an animal and field harvest them and then bring it to the slaughter facility. I still have 
an inspector at my farm when that animal is being put down. It is the same thing the inspector does at the slaughter facility with cows. So the inspector at the slaughter facility looks at the animal, makes sure that it can stand up and walk on its own. It is not bleeding, it is not lame. Um, It is basically a healthy animal and it walks itself into the chute. And then we bring the animal to the slaughter facility for the post-mortem inspection, because that is something that has to be done in a clean space, according to FSIS, um, so that you can look through um, the head and the neck and basically all the glands and things that basically would harbor any type of infection or bacteria. They look through all the organ meats and things like that. Okay. Um, So yeah, so the the animal is transported um, to the slaughter facility for their post-mortem inspection and then hung and aged and then cut. Yeah. But you're not field dressing that animal on its hide in the field. No. Right. No. Are you even gutting it? You're not gutting it in the field either. I feel like a lot of animals could be field harvested and still dressed cleanly and sold appropriately. Um, There's a little piece of that in the prime act. I don't know how much you know about that, but we may see some of that to start gaining a little bit of traction here, recognizing that more farmers want to raise more meat to feed more people without it having to go through a lot of these centralized locations. And people want to do what's right. And they want to offer a really good, high quality, clean product but let's talk about what that looks like from a small scale. And so we're just, we're just having some of those conversations and I'm obviously having those conversations from a bison perspective, specifically first. You, you consult through holistic livestock farm management as well. Um, When you consult for others in that respect, what are some of the common problems or challenges that producers face when they try to incorporate those practices uh, and are you doing that m- almost always for bison producers or are you doing that for other you know, animal protein producers that are trying to incorporate holistic livestock management practices? Yeah, totally. That's a great question. So, so right. So basically, so I became a savory um, holistic management um, accredited professional just because it it kind of aligned with what we wanted to do on our space. We recognize that we raise animals on a relatively small amount of acreage, right? I don't have hundreds of acres. Um, we've got a hundred and you know 30 something acres total between the two properties we have. Um, so I'm never just going to have the luxury of having hundreds of acres and animals roaming that property. So I had to be very careful with the space that I did have and make sure that it was growing the grass I needed. So it wouldn't be grass fed, grass finished. Um, and so, so that, that led me to that holistic management perspective. And so I feel like that aligns with a lot of other folks because especially if you're just getting into farming and you haven't been given a generational farm that does have that hundreds of acres or even thousands of acres out West, you have to figure out what to do with your space and how to make it, give it the biggest bang for your buck type thing. So I really come at it, not from just um, like a regenerative perspective, which I love that. And we should be leaving the space better um, than it was when we, we got there. I do believe in that. But I also recognize that it has to be profitable for you to continue with it or even make it a generational type thing. My boys are not going to want to take over the farm if it doesn't make any money. Um, And then everything that I did was just a fun hobby for while I was alive type thing. And what impact does it truly make? Um, So I really come at it. I like the holistic management perspective because I teach it 
um, from the profitability perspective. So basically, if I'm if I am able to rotate my animals on my 64 or 130 or so acres appropriately, that means that I don't have to buy another farm that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to have another 100 or 200 acres, right? Right there is a cost savings, just because I figured out how to rotate them appropriately. Right now, I do consult specifically for bison producers, um, just because that's kind of the niche, I, the niche I'm in. Um, but we've started to expand more in regards to, you know, folks who do have larger livestock, specifically cat, cattle. Um, and then maybe some, you know, we talk about elk a little bit too, just because they're also a non-amenable species and, you know, kind of aligns with, with what we do. Um, but, but yeah, I, I really like to talk to folks um, about how to set themselves up from a regenerative perspective, um, but making sure that it's profitable for them. Mm. And I feel like that is the piece of the puzzle that a lot of people don't hear about specifically. Um, that they're like, yeah, it's great to have your own meat or you know, to homestead or to try and go out there and run a farm business. Um, but what are what are the what is the dollars and cents really say? And a lot of people don't like to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and what that truly means and if this is like an actual a viable business or if it's truly just going to be a hobby for them um, and so I like to have those frank conversations with people about what that may look like for them so both both are ruminant animals right cattle and bison mm -hmm. yes both can be applied in a regenerative holistic fashion but what are some of the mm -hmm. nuanced differences between applying those practices when rearing bison versus applying those practices when rearing cattle. You know, you can put 50 cows in a two acre pasture and they're going to be fine. Um, if you put 50 bison in a two acre pasture, they're not fine. <laughs> they do not like that um, because bison typically would like to roam. Um, <clears throat> and there's just not enough space for them because they can be very aggressive with each other, especially because our bison have horns. A lot of people now raise cattle that don't have horns, but Either way, even if you have preferred cows or if you have um, highland cows that do have horns, they do very well in those right. smaller spaces. Um, bison don't. We learned that the hard way. Um, I've lost a number of calves and animals from that perspective really? because I put them on too small of a space. Mm -hmm. And which is unfortunate because I didn't just put polywire out to put them on those smaller spaces. I built fence, <laughs> five strand high tensile huh. wire. I have a couple pastures that are two acres and we do not use them anymore. We keep those gates open um, uh, for those yeah. pastures. So we learned that the hard way, you know, and, but we had to try it, you know, cause there were, there, there were some people in the business who had said that if they had bison that they had from calves and started on a poly wire, they would respect the poly wire and did fine in those smaller spaces. And so I was like, okay, well, let's see what happens, you know, and it just didn't work for us. Um, there are definitely some nuances to an animal that is only semi-domesticated and that would be one of those nuances. Um, so I think if you are raising, raising cattle, there are some, there are some perks to that business because you could even get more cattle on an even smaller space. Um, sure. bison, you're not going to fit quite as many of them on that small space. As we close, tell the listeners how they can learn more about, uh, Riffle Farms how they can get access to your product. Mm -hmm. um, and then as a 
final sort of wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about that we haven't yet? Yeah, totally. So you can always reach us online um, on our website. It's just www.rifflefarms.com. Um, and so you can get a, in touch with us from that perspective. You can join our email list and then you kind of keep up with what's going on with us. We also have um, Instagram, which is just Ripple Farms Bison and Facebook, just at Ripple Farms on Facebook as well. Um, we do have an online store, but that is pretty much pre-order because we do not ship our meat. Um, that's just a really oh. tough aspect for us to do. Yeah, just okay. shipping perishable items um, is is kind of, it's expensive for one. And there's only a couple of us working full-time on the farm. And so trying to do that in rural West Virginia can be tough. So we've dabbled with that a little bit, but right now we do not ship. Um, we, we do pre-order. So you have to come and get it either from the farm or from one of our farmer's markets, which we do and do farmer's markets kind of all over the region. So we do farmer's markets as far east as Virginia Beach. Um, and we'll start oh, wow. those back up actually next month um, in Virginia Beach area. So, um, but for West Virginia, they kind of stop those markets while it's snowing out there. So we won't start those back up until May. Um, we do have farm merchandise though, that you can always mm -hmm. order and That's I right. will ship that to you. <laughs> <laughs> As a podcast host, it's a pleasure when you have a guest like Liz who tells such a great story that all you have to do is ask a few leading questions and they take the episode from there. Her story has such a natural flow that you can relate to every aspect of it. Military service member, transitioning veteran, entrepreneur, family leader, trailblazer, etc. It's encouraging to hear a professional talk realistically about holistic livestock management from the perspective of profitability. It's not wrong if it's a hobby farm instead of a full-time self-sustaining business, but there is a difference in the way the two of those pursuits are managed. Liz understands that, and I hope from her insight here and across all her areas of expertise that they'll provide some value to our listeners. You can learn more about Riffle Farms at www.rifflefarms.com. Join their email list to keep track of their progress. They're on Instagram at Riffle Farms Bison and on Facebook at Riffle Farms. They do have an online store for merchandise, but unfortunately their meat is available for pre-order and pickup only. They don't ship. If you're in the West Virginia area, head to one of their farmer's markets and pick up some bison meat for yourself and your family. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Vassal, and until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>